you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and uh, open up to the book of James. We're studying through the book of James, and we'll be in chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 19. In her book, Amazing Grace, the poet and writer Kathleen Norris shares what she calls the scariest story that she'd ever heard about the Bible. Norris and her husband were visiting a man named Arlo. He was this rugged old self-made man who, uh, who is facing terminal cancer. And, and during their visit, Arlo started talking about his grandfather, who was a very devout and sincere Christian. The grandfather gave Arlo and his wife, his bride, a, a wedding gift of a Bible uh, on their wedding day. And uh, he had their names engraved on the, the leather uh, binding it's just a wonderful blessing that he gave to them. And the problem was Arlo and his wife left it in the box. They opened it, just looked at it, and put it back down. Uh, and then they tucked it away in a closet somewhere. He really wasn't much of a Christian himself, and neither was his wife. But his grandfather would continue to ask them, Hey, do you like the Bible I gave you? Oh, yeah, it's, it's nice, they would often say. And every time that he would see them, he would say, Hey, are you enjoying the Bible that I gave you? And time went by, and finally, curiosity got him, because Arlo figured he's going to ask again. So then he went, and he pulled out of the closet that had been there for quite a while now after they'd been married, and he opened it up. And there, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, was a $20 bill. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and Judges, and Ruth, you get the picture. At the beginning of every book in the Bible, there was a $20 bill, over $1,300 in all. And they were clueless about it all that time. And so, when you can be thinking about all this he began thinking about this. His, his grandfather had hid that money in there knowing that he probably would never find it because he would never open up the Bible. But inside the pages is a hidden treasure. And so I'm going to ask you that you would open up your own Bible and find a treasure that is concealed within it. It may not be a $20 bill at the beginning of every book, but there's value and worth on every single page. Just a few years ago, the American Bible Society, back in 2012, commissioned the Barna Research Group to do a study on Bible literacy in America. That was their, their questions that they were going to ask, and, and so some of what was discovered was really kind of surprising, and it was encouraging, as a matter of fact. He found this out. 85% 85% of Americans in their household, they own at least one Bible. The average household has 4.3 Bibles in it. Furthermore, he, he discovered that 69% of Americans believe that the Bible provides answers on how to live a meaningful life. Even so, he said 26% of Americans never read their Bible. And 10% read it less than once a year. And 54% were unable to identify the first five books of the Bible. 
And it just amazes me. We might have something in our possession, and yet we tend to store it away in closets, or we put it on the coffee table and we never open it. It's only there for special occasion. And it's really sad because within the pages of that book, there is treasure that is life-changing. And it's something we all need to, to begin to discover. Each page has got something that is worth more valuable than rubies or gold. As we look at the book of James, we're going to discover that James, who is the brother of Jesus, a younger half-brother of Jesus, he's learned what it means to live by faith, by watching his, his brother Jesus live. And so now he's going to impart some of his observations and some of his, his own personal study of life with us as a church as to how we should live. Helen Keller put it this way. Helen Keller, she says, I am only one, but I am still one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not to refuse to do something that I can do. And see, we need to grow within our hearts this undefiled faith that James is going to talk about. We need to, we need to allow it to, to penetrate the very core of our being, and so somehow it begins to just roll right out of us in our life and the things that we say and do. So this morning I want us to explore three different ways that the Bible, the Word of God, impacts our lives. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to James chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 19. And it begins with this. We need to receive God's Word is the first thing He tells us. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls." He wants us to first off take note of this, he tells us. Know this is what he says. And so we need to begin to, to pay attention and, and begin to really jot down what he wants us to understand. He says, James began calling for his reader's attention when he says, take note of this or know this. There were town criers years ago that used to stand out in the central area of, of the city and they would scream out, hear ye, hear ye. Or in old English-speaking countries, they used to word, use the word, oh yes, oh yes. I'd never heard that one before. But usually it was somebody who would do everything they could to get the attention of the people around them because there was something important for them to know. And James does this here in verse 19. He says, I want you to know this. Take note of this. Be attention. He's trying to get our focus on what he wants us to understand. You know, a lot of times we're watching television and all of a sudden, the screen goes crazy, and there's this really obnoxious noise that comes across it, and this is a test. This is only a test. If it were a real thing, you know, emergency, they would tell you what to do. And so it just blares out. They've got those things now out in the cities where they have these warning signs. We were down in Hot Springs, Arkansas a few weeks ago, and as we were coming out of a, a, one of these antique stores and stuff, all of a sudden, blaring from these horns was this test. And it wasn't just the sound, it was the voice, and they had the speakers trying to get everyone's attention. Believe me, 
Everybody, if they were anywhere inside the city of Hot Springs, probably heard that horn and got everyone's attention. We try to do that. We want people to know, and we want to find out who's listening as well. I remember when I was a child, my dad had a CB in his car, and he would travel around, and, and you would often hear this come across that CB. Breaker 1-9, got your ears on? You've been there, right? You, 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 yeah. So some of you probably are those CB handles and those radio guys, but that would come across, and they would call out the number that you were on, Breaker 1-9, which was Channel 19, and they want to know, does anybody got your ears on? Because they want to have a conversation. So Jesus would say it this way, he who has ears, let him hear. So James wants to get our attention. And there are three expectations that James gives us here to help us understand the Word of God. He says, in order to truly receive God's Word, it demands that we be quick to hear. I mean, reluctance to listen is going to block anything that the Word of God is going to want to impress upon us. You know, sometimes it would be that we would grab our children and we would say, look at me. Look at me while I'm talking to you. Because we know that when they're not looking, their attention is somewhere else. We want them to pay attention, so we want them to see with their eyes, and if they have to, read our lips, because they need to know this. And if we aren't quick to listen, we're going to miss something. Next, it demands a restrained speech when he says, be slow to speak. Some people are just talkative. They've got that motor mouth, you know, and, and there is no silence around them, and they're always talking, 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 and they never hear anything else that anybody else is saying. So not only do you need to be quick to listen, but you've got to slow down. You're talking. Your speech is too much, he tells us. So a continual talker cannot hear what anyone else is saying, and likewise, they will not be able to hear God when he speaks either. The third aspect is this. He says, finally, it demands this restrained temper when it says, Slow to anger. You know, I know that when I've been upset and I'm angry, you, you lose track of anything and everything else around you. You just can't hear it, you can't see it, because you are so focused on your own anger, how you have been offended, and you're not willing to listen to anything else. And so sometimes these endless talkers may easily degenerate into these fierce debaters because their anger begins to rise up. And we see that all the time in our generation. An angry attitude is not the atmosphere in which righteousness prevails and flourishes. And James is going to stress from a very positive way over in James chapter 3, verse 18, when he says this, he says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so when we're trying to to understand what righteous living is all about, we've got to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, because those things deter us from growing in Christ. Um, now, in further preparation for being able to receive God's Word, which is going to change us in life, we need to put away all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness that this world has to offer us, all right? In other words, we need to clean our slates. Remember in the old schoolhouses, maybe you've seen pictures or maybe you were there. And you had the piece of slate and chalk, and you would write out as the, you know, the teacher would put up the, the, the problem of mathematics on the chalkboard, and that was slate as well. It wasn't these whiteboards or whatever. So this was all long before Chromebook, kids, all right? And before, before my generation that had the ruled lined paper, all right, slates 
were used, and they would say, okay, you put the problem up, and they'd write it down, and then the teacher would say, now clean your slates, and so they'd have to clean the slate and start over, and they begin fresh. Maybe we need to clean our slates in our life and be ready to listen to what the Word of God has to say. Matter of fact, he tells us to put away, and that word put away is actually a word that is used to describe the taking off of your clothing. So take things off. And it's used in Hebrews chapter 12, which we just went through Hebrews. And in chapter 12, it talks about the runners in a race, they will throw off anything that's going to easily hinder them. And so you would see in a lot of the Roman Olympics, they ran or they exercised or they did their things in nakedness. They would get rid of anything that might deter them from being as quick and as fast as possible. And so he's telling us that we need to put away, we need to throw off everything in life so that we can be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And that we can put away all this filthiness and this rampant wickedness that is in our world around us, this moral filth and this evil. I mean, you think about what we see on our televisions today and we hear through our radios, and it's all over our, our internets and computers. Our world is evil. And it is wicked, and it is very rampant. And it's not just here in America, but it's all over this world. The, now, the people here that he's talking to in the book of James, these are people in the church, and he's telling the people in the church, well, he shouldn't have to do that, should he? He's telling the people, the Christians, to get rid of all their filthiness and their rampant wickedness. A lot of them have just come out of pagan religions, which were very wicked in some of the things that they did. And, and he says, you've got to get rid of more of that. You can't hang on to any of it. Get rid of all of it. And so he wants them to get rid of whatever might remain. And so receiving the word of truth must be marked also, he tells us, with humility and meekness. Now, it's not to be taken as some kind of a spineless, weak uh, feeling that we have. We, we still have strength in Christ, but rather it's the quality of a strong man that makes himself submit to the will of somebody else, is what he's asking. That we, even in our own strength, we're going to surrender that to somebody else's will, and as a Christian, preferably, it's the will of God, and we will do what He asks us to do. And only in such a spirit can we truly receive the full blessing of God and His truth. Hearing is important, especially hearing the Word of God, because faith it comes by hearing. We see that in the book of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, when Paul writes the church and he says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it's important for us to really be able to be attentive and listen to what is the Spirit of God teaching us. But unless hearing is followed by obedience, it really is nothing. It hasn't changed at all. All we have simply done is heard the things. And Jesus tells a parable about two guys. One hears the Word of God and he puts it into practice, and the other guy hears the Word of God and he does nothing about it. And he gives this illustration about the parable of these two different builders, one who builds his house on the rock and one who builds his house on the sand. And obviously, the guy who built his house on the rock, he heard, he listened, and he obeyed, and he put it into practice. But the other one ignored it all, and his house eventually was destroyed. So that brings us to our second challenge, really, is the obeying of the Word of God. It's easy for us to sit back and listen. 
We do that all the time. And we allow things just to come in one ear and out the other. But once it comes into our life, then there's got to be a change in how we live. And so we've got to obey God's Word. Let's turn again to James chapter 1, beginning at verse 22. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perceives and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So we need to do more than just listen. That's what James is trying to get us to understand. It's good that you're listening, but now what are you going to do about it? So we need to do more than just living. It's not just enough to merely listen to the Word of God and to read it and then congratulate ourselves because we've heard it. We've got to put it into our life and to practice. This word that he uses here translated deceiving, it carries with it the idea of a false reasoning. And so the non-doer, he has this rationalization of his lack of conformity to the Word of God because he at least has heard it. And Jesus tells another parable about a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho one day and he got uh, jumped by a bunch of thieves and they beat him up and they stole everything and they left him there naked and half dead. And along comes a priest and along comes a Levite and along comes a Samaritan. But the first two guys, they looked at him and they passed by on the other side and ignored him. And these guys, they had read the Word of God. They had heard it proclaimed many times. They were hearers of it. But in this situation, they weren't doers of it. You've got to put it into practice in your life. And that's what he's telling us here. We've got to obey it. We've got to be more than just hearers of the Word. You know, sometimes there's, there's well, we say, I'm multitasking. And so we've got all these wonderful things, and we can do all kinds of things. At least people have communicated that when they're driving. I can do more things than just drive, right? So let's, let's kind of go through a little scenario. You're driving your automobile, all right? And you're, and you're listening to all the things that are little stimulus in the vehicle with you. Maybe it's your phone is on, and you're going to be one of those smart people, and you're going to do hands-free phone. All right, so you're not going to hold it here and drive. You're, you're going to talk to it and let it, the other person communicate with you. So you're on a hands-free phone call, but you've also got the radio going, and the wife is next door, and she's trying to tell you something about something. And, and you've got all these things going. The kid's in the back seat, and they're making a lot of noise. And, and then you're, all of a sudden you begin to hear this funny sound in the car of what's going on. And you're trying to figure that out at the same time. And then you, your GPS just told you, turn right now. Now, how well have you done any of those things? We can't. We think we can. We think we're wonderful multitaskers, but science has proven over and over and over again. We focus on one thing. The other things may distract us momentarily, but we focus on one thing. And James is telling us, you've got to focus on the Word of God so much that you are obedient to it when it tells you to do something. You immediately do it. The Word of God is described as being implanted in us. It now becomes a part of who we are. And James isn't calling for just an initial acceptance of the gospel message because these people have already accepted it. 
Now he's telling them, recognize what has been implanted in you and live by that. You know, when, when you plant a seed in your garden and you plant a carrot seed, it grows a carrot, not a cucumber. When you plant a watermelon seed, grapes don't grow. I mean, they may be really big grapes, but they, it doesn't happen. So what has been implanted in you is that which is going to change your life for better. And you've got to allow it to, to stimulate your action. So this call to do what it says lies at the very center of everything James is going to tell us in this book that he has written to the church. It sums up the message in the whole book, and he tells us to put into practice what we profess to believe. And as a matter of fact, some might even suggest that James chapter 1, verse 22 is the key verse of that whole letter. That you should not just merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. You do what it says. Mark Twain, he wasn't a believer. I've been doing some reading about him according to the Christian church because he had friends and uh, family members that were very much impacted by the Christian church. But Mark Twain did not believe in God. He said he had no problem with parts of the Bible that he couldn't understand. There was no problem. If I don't understand it, he's fine. He doesn't understand it. He said, but the parts that gave him trouble were those that he understood all too well because they go against what his natural character wants to do. So if we're going to obey this God's Word, there needs to be a reason for our action. And so he tells us you need to look with intention, but if you immediately forget like the man with the mirror, then you've deceived yourself. And so this, this idea that he tells us is, is, not, is described not as a hasty glance, that you just kind of walk by the mirror and you see yourself and you say, well, what were you wearing? Well, um, what was your hair like? Did you, did you forget to put on your makeup? It wasn't just that quick glance. This is one where you have an attentive scrutiny of the object in the mirror. And you have been there because I've been there. And if I've been looking at myself in the mirror, I'm sure other people have as well. You go in and you look real close and you try to figure things out. Maybe you've got something in your eye. Maybe you've got something on your nose or maybe whatever it is. And we take a deep look in that mirror. And that's what he's saying. These people who look intently into the mirror and then when they turn around, they forget what they saw. Well, that's kind of foolish, isn't it? How, how could we do that? So the man carefully studies his face, he becomes so familiar with it, and then all of a sudden it's gone. There's a story of this elderly gentleman who thought himself to be a rather uh, proficient art critic. Uh, well, he may not have been professional, but, you know, the amateur, so to speak. Well, some friends had come over for a visit, and he and his wife were taking him to one of the art galleries, and they were going to show them the, the famous artworks around. And as he's going there, one of the things he forgot was his glasses. And he's a little bit nearsighted. So as they're making their way throughout the art gallery, he's telling his friends about this piece of artwork and this piece of artwork. And they come up to this one that was framed there, and, and he begins to make this statement. He, he says about this, this, this piece of art there, he says, in the first place, the frame is altogether out of keeping with the subject. Got the wrong frame on it, basically, is what he's saying. And his wife is standing in the back, and she looked a little surprised. And then he makes this statement. He says, and as for the subject in it itself, it is altogether too homely. In fact, 
It's too ugly ever to make a good picture. And then she starts going, trying to get his attention. Well, he continues to go on and she slowly moves forward, trying to get closer to him. And he, he says, it's a great mistake for any artist to choose so homely a subject for a picture if he expects it to be a masterpiece. And now she's doing a little bit louder. And he finally says, and if he does, the face should at least have some character. His wife finally gets his attention and says, honey, you're looking in a mirror. (laughs) The Word of God, it is like a mirror. And it shows us the truth of who we are. And a lot of times, we don't like what we see. We need to look with intention, and we need to immediately implement what it says, is what James is telling us. Don't look at it and forget. Look at it and do. And so he uses this terminology here about looking intently, and this picture's a person. The word is actually used in a couple other times in Scriptures. It's used when John the Apostle and Mary uh, Magdalene when they made their way early that morning on a Sunday and they discovered a stone was rolled away and they looked inside a tomb to see if Jesus was truly gone. And so we see there in the book of John chapter 20, stooping to look in, John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And the later it says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she was wept when she stooped to look into the tomb. And so we have this idea, this looking intently at the Word of God is this idea of of stooping in, getting down, getting close and trying to really see what it is telling us. Making sure my eyes are not deceiving me that I understand what is truly being said because now I'm going to apply it and I'm going to accept the truth that is there and I'm going to live by it. And so here in James chapter, chapter 1 verse 25, it's as though a person stoops over the Scripture passionately searching for its message because they want to know what it is that they should be doing. And so the person who seriously continues looking into this perfect law, the law of liberty, freedom, is a person who is ultimately blessed. We need to really delve into the Scriptures because we find blessings in it. The Old Testament law, which we read about last few months as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament law, it wasn't perfect. Matter of fact, it could not give life or righteousness. Paul tells the church at Galatian in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But really, it's only a shadow of the good things to come. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the sacrifices, the same one which can never take away sins. The law of the Old Testament was only like a schoolmaster. It was a guardian. It was someone to entrust and to teach and to guide and, and, and to lead us to Jesus so that we might be justified by faith. Listen to what it says there in Galatians 3.24. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, 
in order that we might be justified by faith. And in the Old Testament, God promised a new law. He promised a new covenant would be written on the hearts of people rather than on stone tablets. And it would be ingrained and implanted in us. So listen what Jeremiah 31, 33 said. He said, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then Jesus introduces this new covenant there, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or chapter 11, verse 25, he says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this perfect law, this new law that God is giving us through Jesus Christ is now being implanted in us. It becomes a part of who we are. So we take it with us wherever we go because we've read it enough that it lives within us. And the law of liberty sets believers free from the law as a means of righteousness and grace. Paul says in Romans 10, 4, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And also it's the end of sin. And so he writes to the church in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 1 through 4, he says, There is therefore no now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, or the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this law of liberty brings us freedom. It sets us free from our own sinfulness and our own deceptions. But it's not the freedom to sin, but it's freedom from sin to serve God. And so Paul tells us in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he tells the church in Galatians again, once in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through, but through love serve one another. And then back in Romans 6 again, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. So the Old Testament, even in its perfection that it might have, it wasn't perfect. It didn't bring us life. It didn't change things for us. But this new law, this new covenant, this new relationship that is in the Word of God, that He implants within us now, brings us freedom and he says, whoever perseveres or continues to stay true to the Word of God receives this blessing. I mean, it, it literally means one who is always remaining near if we're going to persevere in it. And we need to remember it. Because when we remember it, obedient listeners do not forget what they have heard. I think it's neat that on Thursday nights, uh, Sean has our uh, teens memorizing Scripture. And he challenges them every week. And, and I don't know which number they're on this week, letter. It's like G-I. You're further. All right? But each week and each letter of the alphabet, there's a new scripture. And they're memorizing that. 
And not just memorizing it for this week, but some of them go back to letter A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and now I, and they say them all. When the Word of God becomes implanted in our lives, all of a sudden it changes and transforms how we live. We become a doer. And so we put God's Word into practice and we follow through with our commitment. So the third thing is this that we discover here, is that living out God's Word is the third way that God's Word impacts our lives. And so he ends in verse 26 and 27 by saying, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So religion that is pure and undefiled and the kind that God wants us to have, it's found in our speech is what James is saying. It's how you talk. It's the language you use. So he says it's, it's in our speech. So if we consider ourselves religious, that word religious appears only four times in the New Testament and two times it's right here in this chapter, this idea of religion. And it describes a person who performs the external acts of religion, such as public worship and fasting and prayers and giving to the needy. They want everybody to see it. So if you're going to be doing something religiously so that others recognize it, first off, it, it, it comes into your speech. So he says this person he's talking about is the one who doesn't keep a tight rein on his lips. They lack control over what they say. Their unbridled tongue reveals really what their religious heart is, and it's worthless. Later on, he's going to tell us that you can't you know, praise God and, and sing worship to Him and then turn around and curse your brother and say something awful about Him. You can't do that. Your tongue gives you away that you're really not being faithful to God. So the person that he's returning to about this, such a person has played the part of one who's religious. They've convinced themselves that they're religious, but actuality, they're deceiving themselves. They're not. There's some fellows who come up to Jesus sometime and they say, hey, you know, we want to get to heaven. And he says, you know, even though you call me your Lord, you've not done what I said. You don't know me. I don't know you. We've got to do more than just listen. We've got to do more than just say we're a believer. It's got to be part of our action in our lives. So the second time that James talks about self-deception in this chapter here in verse 22, the person who hears the truth but doesn't put it in practice, they deceive themselves. And here in verse 26, this deceived person is the one whose religious acts, they don't make a difference. They're still living like the world. It ought to change also how we act in our compassion. One's religion then should be more than just external. It's got to spring from the internal person of who we are, and the Spirit's going to have to control that because it makes a difference in how we live and what we do. The word that appears here also appears in Matthew chapter 25 <clears throat> with reference to visiting the sick. And not just really making some kind of social call, but that you're there to take care of their needs. Back in 2006, I went to Ukraine and I worked there for about a month in a hospital trying to set up a ministry. 
And I would go around and have Bible studies with the doctors and the nurses and with the patients. And I had an interpreter with me. And one day, I walked into a room of some ladies who'd had hip uh, replacement, and, and we'd been there. I'd seen them every day. And, and uh, I walked in, and I, I said, well, how are my friends today? And my interpreter did not say a word. And I looked at her, and she took me out to the hall, and she said, I can't say that. I said, what do you mean you can't say how are my friends today? She says, they're not your friends. I said, what do you mean they're not my friends? She said, if you say they're your friends here in Ukraine, then you're saying you're going to take care of their hospital bill, you're going to take care of feeding them, make sure that they got their clothing washed, you're going to take care. A friend is more than an acquaintance. You're an acquaintance. Unless you want to pay their hospital bill and you want to see that they have food every day. And I thought about that. To be a friend is to do more than just go by and say hi. To be a friend is what he's saying here, to have compassion on somebody else, to visit the orphan and to visit the widow means you've got to do more than just to go by and say, how are you doing today? You've got to take them into your life and you've got to make a difference in how they're living. And if all possible, you bring them into their house because a true friend is going to show such compassion that they're going to meet their needs. Being a true friend and a brother in Christ often puts a burden on us so that we relieve the burdens of those around us. That's why the church says we are to bear one another's burdens. And Jesus says you just don't wish them warmth and being well fed. You've got to do more than that. Peter tells us, that not only does it do this, but it changes our morality and our ethics. James says that as well. We need to keep our character, he says, unstained from this polluted world. The world, as he's describing here, is this total system of evil that pervades everybody's life. And it, and it slips into the church even, and it makes a difference in us. Peter used that word unstained as well when he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1.19 to refer to Jesus Christ as being spotless, without blemish or spot. He says there, but the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And as Christians, we need to model our purity and our morality and our ethic upon the Word of God, not upon the people around us. Culture and society do not determine your morals and your ethics and your values. The Word of God should do that. And then everything that you're involved in in life, it should come out. Pure religion of, is worship of God, is free from this moral corruption and the spiritual impurities, and it's alive and it's vibrant and it's committed to Christ. And, and it, it does more than just attends church. It does more than just periodically giving money to some religious institution or some charitable organization. It lives a decent morality as well. Pure religion demands self-control, self-sacrifice, and self-denial. And that person with pure religion shows self-control by managing their tongue, James tells us, so that it pleases others when they're around them. There's no opportunity for insult or filthy talk. 
A person who is practicing pure religion shows self-sacrifice by using their time and their money to care for others who are in need. And among the neediest people in the first century were the widows and the orphans. And you know what? I think they're still there. A truly committed person to Christ shows self-denial by separation from the world. And the world provides a system of values that are influenced by evil and antagonism towards Christ and towards the church. But wise, committed believers will be able to identify those worldly influences and it's going to avoid them. So if we're going to summarize everything that's written here in, in, in James, at least in this section today, it insists that a person's religion must consist of more than just superficial acts. It's not enough to listen to the statement of spiritual truth nor is it sufficient just to engage in some kind of formal religious experience. It's got to stem from who you are. It's got to be changing inside. And the person whose religious experience is genuine, whom the spiritual truth, it puts into practice how they live, and their life is going to be marked by their love for other people and for the holiness of God. It's very simple. Once you hear the words of Christ... You put them into practice. You live them. You don't wait until you know more or till you're more mature in Christ, and then you do them. You do it immediately. Let me close with this. A young man was baptized into Christ. And a couple months later in his Sunday school class, uh, the teacher asked him about you know, his transition and everything with, with this. And she said, so what have you done for Christ since you believed and were baptized? And the boy replied, oh, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm still a learner. <laughs> oh, okay. So she said, well, when you have a candle and you light a candle, you light it to make the candle more comfortable or to give you light? Well, he said, well, that's silly. You light a candle to give you light. So she said, okay. And do you expect it to give light after it's been burned about halfway down or immediately when you light it? Well, he says, immediately when you light it. And so she said, you need to go do the same. We are a light in this world and a light that cannot be hidden We've got to be seen, and people need to see our faith by the things that we do. We've got to live out the righteousness of Christ. We cannot merely just listen to the Word and deceive ourselves. We've got to do what it says. Y'all would come and prepare our song. I want to challenge you with this. I don't know where you are. If this is the first time you have heard the message of the gospel of Jesus, or if you've heard it a thousand times, but you can no longer just sit back and listen. You've got to apply it in everything you do each day. And one of the quickest ways is evidence is by your language, how you speak, the words that you say. And you'd be surprised how the Spirit of God changes you. And so you're no longer polluted or stained by the world's ideologies, by their values, by their morals. 
But if you've never given your life to Christ, today's a good day. We can begin. We can sit down and talk and look at scriptures. We can, we can pray with you. We can encourage you. We can baptize you. We can walk with you. We can keep you as a part of the family of Christ here and challenge you to grow and to make a difference everywhere you go for Christ. But you're the one who's got to decide, do I want to continue to deceive myself or do I want to live for him? Let's stand together.